Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Millions of people recognize Scott Rogowski as the original host of HQ Trivia, the daily live trivia app that became massively popular in 2017 before fizzling out in 2019. CNN looked back on that phase of Rogowski's life in the 2023 documentary, Glitch, The Rise and Fall of HQ Trivia. But I first met Scott when he was barely out of college, one of the young upstarts in the downtown New York comedy scene in the late aughts. So we enjoyed a fun stroll down memory lane as Rogowski reflected with me, on how his internship with The Onion led him down a path that included making viral videos with Playboy, a sports talk show with the future editor-in-chief of Vulture, to his own talk show running late with Scott Rogowski, all the way through HQ to his current life in Southern California, where he runs his own vintage clothing and sports memorabilia shop, Quiz Daddy's Closet in Santa Monica. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Pivony at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode, as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Last things first. First things yes. last. Let's do the, it. The only podcast, per- perhaps still, post-produced by our one and only mutual friend. Well, we have many mutual friends, but Alex Brazell. Is it really? Yeah. No way. <laughs> Showbiz Studios lives. I I thought he had, he's got his own gig now. He's doing big things. He kind of moved on from the podcast world, but I'm good. To, I'm glad to hear that. He still helps me because there uh, there's some things I just cannot for the life of me <laughs> figure out. Yeah. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. Not that the the people the fine viewers of CNN haven't seen and heard enough about you. How do how do you feel like that turned out? That was I think they did a good job with it, you know. I um Contrary to what some of the internet might believe, I had nothing to do with the production or direction or editing or anything uh, to do with the documentary other than appearing in it. So if there are people who are upset about certain people being left out mm-hmm. or certain narratives not being told, it is not my call, not my fault. Take it up with the director and the production company. Um, but for, uh, for you know, I was a little nervous, actually, when I I was hesitant to do it. First of all, because I'd already talked so much about it. And then once I, I interviewed, I mean, the interview process, if you want to go behind the scenes, was a bit of a nightmare. And God bless all the people working. I know a lot of hard people worked on this thing. But they picked an Airbnb in Brooklyn to shoot this okay. interview. And it was the thinnest walls in Brooklyn. <laughs> and for whatever, I guess we were too close to JFK or something. Mm-hmm. There were planes going overhead. And every five minutes, we had to stop down for planes and the, and the, and it was like, she'd ask me some question, like, mm-hmm. what was it like to, you know, your friend and, and boss uh, overdosing on, it's like, I'm trying to get this emotional story. I don't stop, cut down. And I had to reset my story. Right. All that. So that part of it was uh, not the most fun and a little frustrating. And then, um, you know, when you do these things, even talking to journalists, you never know how, how your words are going to be twisted or used, or especially with the documentary, you know, I think back to the famous Simpsons hard copy parody with uh Homer sweet, sweet can, you know, how they recut. 
<laughs> they recut his interview. So it's like, you know, once, once you do this thing, it, it's fair game. They can chop it up however they want. Right. My, my, my hope was, and it turned out to be true, was that, you know, this is CNN. There are some journalistic standards they have to adhere to, and they're not going to, you know, take things out of context or, or really mangle my intentions. So I was pleased with, uh, with how that came out. You know, there are a few instances where I thought they, they could have let me talk a little more. Let me finish the thought or close the loop on some things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's an hour and 28 minutes. They had a, there's probably enough material in there to go double the length. All in all, I probably gave him six to eight hours. Don't get my, don't get me wrong here. I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad mm-hmm. I got the story out, and I'm very thankful to to Salima, the director, and left to right the producers who really I think did a fine job. All in all, that final shot though of you uh, <laughs> blowing yeah, I leaves it was outside, I thought just it was outside funny. Quiz Daddies. Yeah, it was such I, a poignant. Like, it was thing. poignant. And, you know, look, could they have put a Chiron that says Quiz Daddies is located at 2525 Main Street in Santa Monica? Sure. Could they put my website URL in there? Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. No, but it wasn't a commercial for me. Um, but, uh, uh, well, my one, my one critique of, of that whole ending is, so you've got the where, where are they now, which, you know, that's a nice tidy wrap up to a documentary and you see my story. But, but how about everybody else who worked on the documentary? Especially how about Russ? Where's Russ today? Because he was the other, you know, Colin, we know where he is, unfortunately. Um, but where is the other main character in this thing? And wait, I, don't know. I, I frankly don't know. What's going and, on with the other hosts? Yeah, what's going on? Exactly. What's going on with the other hosts? I mean, everybody who worked on the show on HQ and the other hosts included, they've all gone on to do great things. And they're they're all, you know, finding success, which is great. I, I know that. But the audience doesn't know that. Right. Um, so I thought that could have been included but again it, it's hard to pack everything in i didn't realize that you were fresh out of college the first time i met you we Most met likely, yeah we met in the winter slash spring of 2008 outside of rafifi mm-hmm. where you had this uh i don't want to say hairbrain you had this idea to launch your own comedy record label mm-hmm. and you were going to start by making an album with tom mccaffrey yeah. And you're explaining this to me outside Rafifi, long live Rafifi in the East yes. Village. Yes. And I was like, who is this guy? And what is, what is happening here? But I didn't realize, like, you had just graduated from college. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I guess I'd been, it had been a year out, out of school and I was interning at the Onion and I had just been immersed myself, immersing myself in the comedy scene in New York and trying to get up as much as possible. And, you know, seeing, meeting all these incredible people and performers and, um, Tom McCaffrey was one of them. I was just blown away by this guy and I couldn't believe, you know, look, you're seeing, I'm seeing David Cross and Michael Showalter, Gene Garofalo, Reggie Watt. You know, you're seeing a lot of these people who were established. I mean, I guess Reggie wasn't quite, quite established at that point, but, you know, people who had careers going strong, managers, agents, the whole nine yards. And here's this Tom McCaffrey guy I thought was just as every bit as funny as the rest of the comics I was seeing, but I'd never really heard of him. I, I, I you know, I'd seen, I guess his premium blend spot. I, I, I was aware that he had done some things at comedy central, but he wasn't repped. He didn't have any albums. And I thought that was a crime, you know? So I, uh, I just approached him being a 23 year old kind of naive kid, just thinking, I remember actually talking to my dad about this. We were down in Florida at some point and maybe on some family vacation. And, and I was just kind of walking on the beach with him. And I said, I think I want to produce this guy's album and it's going to cost, you know, this amount of money. And I, you know, it's like, I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And he's like, look, if you think this is something that 
you believe in, go for it. He supported the decision. It ended up being like probably 2500 bucks. I mean, I partnered with um, my buddy Travis Sluss, who uh, was the recording engineer. Okay. He was, he, you know, I, I, so I had, I had, cause I didn't know anything about that, but I had the idea and I booked the venue and I set up the, you know, booked the opening acts and got the poster, you know, do the, all the things of producing. And I like producing, you know, getting, even designing the CD album art and putting that whole CD co- uh, cover, which is such a, an anachronistic thing to even think, think about now CDs, but I still have about 400 of those CDs in my, in my parents' basement. Actually, if anybody wants a free copy, hit me <laughs> up. I'm glad I'll gladly send you one media mail. Uh, you should so, sell them at quiz daddies. I right. I don't know. I mean, CDs, God, I mean, that's, anybody... that's gotta be vintage, right? It's certainly vintage coming up on 15 years. That's technically vintage. So, uh, no, I, I, I was, it was a great, I was a great project and Tom was very thankful to have it. And all in all, I made the money back. I mean, from a financial perspective, it, it, it all worked out and, uh, and, and Tom's happy. He's got this record. He ended up doing a couple more albums after that, but you know, I, I did not release another record on the label. It takes a lot to, to say. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about it. I mean, honestly, I, it, it was truly that. Timing is so important in life. And it was 2008. We were kind of at that crossroads where like CDs were sort of being phased out, but uh, I, streaming wasn't quite where it was now. Like Spotify, I mean, now you don't even need to do, do CDs. If you were to produce an album, I would say, forget, you know, you don't make a CD. You just put it out on Spotify and it'd be a lot easier, frankly. But, you know, Travis got busy. And, and, and a lot of that comes down to then the recording aspects. So now it's really all on who's going to record the show and engineer the show, mix the show and all that. And that those aren't my strong suits. And, you know, it just, um, it ended up being that one, that one project, but I'm very proud of it. And it ended up making the best of, I think you might've included on your best of 2008 list or some, some critics, it was highly reviewed, critically adored. And I think it still gets play on, you know, serious, you know, XM stations that they're still mm-hmm. quarterly, very small quarterly checks coming in from the light, <laughs> the royalty. Oh, interesting. But you you mentioned that out of college you were able to get an internship at the Onion. What was that like? That was uh, probably the most consequential thing I've ever done in my life. Looking back on it, because I mean, for one, the Onion was the paper of record in my mind. Right? I mean, if it, if I was a young journalist, this would be like mm-hmm. getting an internship at the New York Times. You know this this was this was the pinnacle of comedy written comedy in the 2000s and i was just a fan of it since you know god going back to high school years so the fact that i can get in there you know it's an internship not getting paid but i don't care i mean i'm like in there i'm me i'm I'm hanging out with carol kolb and joe garden and todd hansen and you know joe Rand randazzo was the editor-in-chief and like you know scott dickers would be around the original founder and editor of the thing and i'm just it, it that was a that was a good example of timing because there was still the old guard there. It was still in New York. You know, they'd moved from Madison to New York, I think, in 2001. Right. And this was 2008. So a lot of those old guys from Madison were still involved. And I'm in the mix. I'm, I was part of the ONN. So I actually applied originally for the paper uh, internship. I did not get that. But again, timing, they were just launching this ONN, Onion News Network. Right. So that's technically my internship was technically for the Onion News Network, the video component. And again, that was like just an cr- amazing group of people who have all gone on to do so many great things. I mean, uh, Chris Kelly was was like a locations manager scout on that thing, like, you know, low, 
low totem pole jobs. Lang Fisher was 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 working on that thing. They've gone on to become great writers and producers. Um, Sasha Stanton Craven, he's been now doing great editing work. Um, there there was uh, who else was I mean Dan Merck, who's also became wrote on a bunch of shows. I mean a lot of really funny talented people. Um, we're, we're working on that thing. And Beth Newell, who is another intern, uh, fellow intern of mine, she went on to found Reductress, which has become this huge thing. And I mean, that was just being in that mix, the other interns, it was an exciting, it was like a startup because this was a new thing, the Onion News Network. And, um, just to get my jokes, you know, in the scroll, they had a little ticker. It was like a parody of CNN. So uh, there'd be a constant scroll with constant jokes in the bottom, Chiron, and all sorts of, there were so many opportunities to get jokes in. Which was great that the Onion Sports Dome came out of that, which then they got the Comedy Central show. Right. They got yeah, could, they end up having at one point two different TV yeah, shows. Yeah, they had an IFC a show. News exactly. one and a sports one. Yeah. Exactly. And I got because I was in there, I, I ended up staying the entire year. These are supposed to be like quarterly or semester internships, maybe for a third of the I ended up doing three rounds. I said, guys, like, I don't want to leave. I, I know, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, you're not paying me. It doesn't matter, right? Like, as long as you'll have me, I'm going to keep showing up. And uh, I guess they had enough chairs and they let me stay. And I cycled through and just became probably the longest tenured intern the entire year of 2008. Um, but another guy I met there, Nick Gallo, who was a fo- the photo editor at the time, that, like I say, it's consequential because, yes, I got to meet all these people and get my jokes published. I ended up did getting some jokes pa- published in the paper because I could submit to the paper and sit on those meetings occasionally, which was just the most amazing thrill of my life at that point, being in the room, those weekly meetings when they put the paper together and hearing all these brilliant writers and Seth Reese, he's now at late night with, with right. Seth Myers and, um, you know, just all these people that were, uh, John Cruz and Chad Knackers, uh, just brilliant, brilliant minds that are putting this thing together. And then to, to walk in one day and to see one of my headlines had been chosen for the A story on the front page. It was it was like a, a a miracle. I mean, I, I could not believe that that had happened and that there was, it It ended up going through, it got published. I framed it. I mean, that's, I can, I can die happy knowing I got a page one, a one story headline which, that Joe which... Garden wrote. It was uh, you know, it's one of those headlines where like, it's not as funny as the concept. And then like the, 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 the <laughs> you know, the, um the, the story was great that Joe wrote. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, and it was, you know, August 2008. So this is presidential campaign heating up. And it was Obama's hillbilly half cousin threatens to derail campaign. And like they had a great baritone Thurston also there. Mm-hmm. Also gone on to do great things. He He's photoshopped as Obama, next to Obama wearing a straw hat and moonshine and overalls. And it's like, you know, a Billy Carter parody. And, and uh, the story was just really funny about, how, you know, like all of a sudden Obama's hillbilly half brother shows up on the campaign trail. Yeah. Um, so that was, it gave them, it was one of those, I, you started to learn these things like, you you know, a, 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 a snappy one line uh, play on words doesn't necessarily work for that A1 story. You know, you can get those in, you can scatter those in other parts of the paper, but you got to write 500 words on, on that story, on that headline, thousand words. And you need something meaty to work with. So that was sort of like, I, I realized that, Oh, that kind of headline gave them, the opportunity to kind of paint this picture a premise yeah a premise it was a good premise headline anyway i learned a lot but then nick gallo all those years later 2008 2017 he's the guy who calls me up and says hey you want to uh, uh come in for an audition for this game show on a phone 
And that became HQ. And that's, you know, that's why I say, say yes to everything. Be nice to people. Take the internships. It may not pay then, but it will pay off down the road. You hope. This one certainly did. Uh, Around that same time, that's when I first met Marianne Ways. She was working at the Onion. And I want to say at the opening, when they talk about setting up your audition, and there's that little imaginary text thread. Mm-hmm. And it says email Marianne. Marianne. I want to yep. say that's Marianne. That is Marianne Way. She was uh, Nick. Nick, uh, <laughs> you picked up on that. You're probably the only one who picked that up on that one. But Mar- Marianne, I think, was technically hired. I-, I think they contracted her to do the host search. Okay. You know, Nick, Nick, probably. You know, Nick is one of those guys. He's he- he's got a great network, a great Rolodex, and he knows a lot of people in the business. And so, oh, I'm hiring. Marianne, she knows casting, but the irony is that they didn't go with anybody that Marianne chose. It was Nick who thought of me and brought me in. So um, I love Marianne, but it was Nick who I have to thank for this one. Uh, who do you have to thank for meeting uh, Neil Janowitz? Boy, good question. Um, I think it's Gary Belsky, and um, who was the editor-in-chief of of the – ESPN the magazine. And now I'm trying to think of how did I get connected to Gary Belsky? Um, Neil is now editor in chief of Vulture. Of Vulture, exactly. Um, but Neil, it was it was someone connecting me. I, I really don't know who it was, how it was, but I think someone connected me to Gary Belsky, mm-hmm. who then connected me to Neil and said, talk to Neil. And then Neil and I grabbed lunch at a steakhouse near uh, ESPN's office in Midtown, and it was like instant simpatico. I was like, "Wow, this guy uh, loves sports, but loves comedy." And we were, you know, firing on all cylinders with the references and things. And it was just like, you know, around the same age. And it was just, uh, I think I brought like all these samples that I had. You know, I, I was sort of formalized. And by the end of it, it was like, "Yeah, we should be, we should be doing like a sports comedy show together." Like, <laughs> you've got the sports contacts, I've got the comedy contacts. And that's what we did. We started 12 Angry Mascots in September of 2008, UCB Theater. We did that one of those uh, applications to be, you know, they, they used to have, uh, you know, you could apply to kind of put on a show there. And right. a little dirty little secret that I uh, will share with you that I've held on to for 15 years is that, you know, the guidelines in that application say, like, you should have put the show on elsewhere. You know, this is UCB is is the grand stage. You mm-hmm. try this out in new haven or somewhere and you bring it down to ucb you don't just launch a fresh show at ucb well we kind of fudged the, the application a little bit and said that we've been doing it for a few months we never done it before this is our first show at ucb and they accepted it they did not take it on it was a one and done we did not mm-hmm. make make it a recurring appearance but um i i we we really didn't have any expectations about that we really just wanted to get it up and and get it up at, at a prestigious place like ucb and then from there, it gave us the confidence to, uh, you know, start booking it elsewhere. And we found an independent theater nearby. And then we ended up going to comics. And then comics, by then yeah, it was comics is where I remember seeing it. Yeah. And comics, you know, at that point we did have, Hey, we did it. You, you know, whoa, UCB is on our, our resume now. That helps. <laughs> right. So uh, mm-hmm. a little hack, a little hack there. And comics was great. They were, um, they gave us a monthly show and that was Brian Bollinger back then, uh, booking that venue. And, um, really had a great run there you know unfortunately that the venue did not fare as well uh and then we ended up going to the pit theater we did it at gotham comedy club you know 
uh, I don't know if we did it at Caroline's. I did running late at Caroline's, but maybe we did it again. But anyway, you know, one, again, it's like once you get a few theaters under your belt and you have a resume, mm-hmm. you've got samples, you can uh, propel yourself onward. So that's what we did with 12 Angry Mascots for three years, and that was a lot of fun. And then then that ran out of steam. Well, it's it seems as though, like, from, from 12 Angry Mascots to running late to HQ, like, you, I really got the sense that, like, deep down... Like, I know you describe yourself as, like, an old comedy soul. Like, you really wanted to be, like, a Johnny Carson or a David Letterman yourself. Yeah, Chevy Chase show is really what I was aiming for. <laughs> or Magic Johnson hour. Your, your show is much longer lived than those, so <laughs> yeah. you can't. No, I, I, you're right. I, I mean, Johnny Carson was a little for my time, but, I mean, I, I, I was aware of Johnny, and I, it was really Conan, Letterman, okay. um you know, and I, of course, yeah, like I, yeah, I, I watch those old clips. I just wanted a talk show. I just love the format of a talk show. I mean, Jack Parr, Steve Allen, I don't care who's hosting it. I thought the whole concept of a talk show is just so fun and engaging. I mean, if it's done well, you've got the variety show aspect. You've got your stand up, your monologues. You've got your guests. You keep it interesting. You got a band that there's never, never a down moment, right? And, and you never really have to, you know, when you go to a stand up show, you got the host will come out and do some crowd work and, you know, people come up and do their stand up. But it's like the stand up, the, the, the relentless parade of stand ups in a stand up show and then the perfunctory interstitial bantering that this host has to do where mm-hmm. it, it gets monotonous, I think, if, as an audience member. And it, it, it it's kind of ebbs and flows and it, you know, you don't really know what you're going to get with a show that you're producing, you're booking. As a producer and host, I know exactly. Well, you 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 can when T.J. Miller is your guest, you don't know what you're getting, but <laughs> you, you you can have a good idea of what you're getting. You're preparing for an interview. You're right. coming up with funny premises and and funny prompts and questions. So you going into the show, I know at least. Okay, this is gonna be a good show. We got a fun show here. And when I say at the top of the show, hey, we got a great show for you tonight. I'm not bullshitting. Like I really believe it. So that's what I I love about that, and I think. You know, again, the music, the band, the the stand up, the guests, the you never know what's going to happen. The whole interplay with two people. I love that format, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, so, and I, your I, dad, and my dad. Don't forget, your dad was a part of the show. Not my first choice. <laughs> Not my first choice. Um, I did reach out to Matt Goldich. Matt could have been part okay. of history. Uh, I reached out a few people who I think I saw him uh, do stand up on one or two. Matt did stand up. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was looking for, I was looking for another comic. Frankly, I thought like an Andy Richter type. And right. you know, to, to Matt's credit, I'm sure he's like, who the hell is this punk? Like asking me to be his sidekick. <laughs> I mean, he was way more established than I was. But uh, you know, I, I, what was nice about my dad is like I don't have to pay him. He's going to be there every show. He can drive me to the show on occasion. And uh, that ended up being, it ended up sticking. And I guess, you know, there, there was, there was a lot of unintentional comedy there. He was a good foil for me and he was a great sport and he just loved, loved being a part of it. Well, that's right. Yeah. Part of, part of that uh, infamous daily beast profile was the fact that you were living with your parents, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I guess you, that, that probably helped being living with your parents probably helped you take these risks, right? It did. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, in terms of like, it, you know, well, first of all, I didn't live with my parents for a while. It was, it mm-hmm. was, I was with them when I graduated college. 
that summer I stayed home. I worked at Trader Joe's, got some money in my pocket, moved into the city, okay. to Brooklyn in, in the fall of 2007. And then I, I really didn't move back home until there was that period in 2017, 10 years later, when I had, I thought I was moving to LA. Okay. And I gave up my apartment in Brooklyn, moved home for what I thought would could be, was going to be the summer. But then HQ came, you know, a okay. month later. So I ended up kind of getting an apartment back. Hey, so it was a whole thing. But um, no, so I wasn't really home too much. But uh, look, they're so close. They're 45 minutes away. So I, I would invariably go home for a night or a weekend or something here and there. And if uh, and there certainly were times where it would time it. So, OK, I'll come home. I've got to prep some things, grab some props. Um, I'll come home and then you can drive us into the show. You know, that would be OK. That would be helpful. Well- I saw Running Late in at least three different venues. I saw it at the UCB, I, underneath Gracides. I saw yep. it at the Pit, mm-hmm. and I saw it at Le Poisson Rouge. LPR, great venue. And uh, what amazed good. me about the show the most, aside from the fact that you made it like a like a regular talk show with the band and the sidekick and the panel, was your impeccable booking skills how were how like there was one show you had john ham on it yeah while madman was still on the air and john benjamin yeah they were on the same show yeah i think i have a picture in my camera roll somewhere yeah yeah look i mean call it tenacity call it just uh again naivete call it these guys and girls and women men and women um you know, to their credit, everybody who appeared in my show took a bit of a risk, not knowing exactly what they're getting into, giving up, being very generous with their time, giving up, you know, at least an hour, two hours between their, between getting there and getting back of, of their night. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful to every single person who appeared in the show and getting them was not easy. I mean, John Hamm, that example was, I had, you know, you, First, you have to get a contact, right? So you have to find an email, get a phone number. I, I hunted people down. I mean, I really, you know, David Cross was the first one, mm-hmm. the first one that really helped. And again, it, it's almost like I was saying about the venues where you get UCB, then you get comics, then you get Gotham. It just takes, a, you know, a few people to get you started. And that first, very first show I did of Running Late, it was these two guys, Jeff and Eric Rosenthal, who I grew up with, who were doing this like rap comedy thing called It's the Real. Uh, uh, it was from PFFR, Jim Tazi, who was part of that collective and he worked on some adult swim shows and I sort of just knew him. I mean, these are not, you know, the boldest of names, mm-hmm. uh, but it was something to get me started. There was a guy, Sean Dunn, who was a documentary filmmaker. I just seen his doc on Vimeo about the gathering of the juggalos that week. Mm-hmm. And I just cold emailed him and I said, Hey, I love this documentary. You want to come talk about it? And then Joe Mandy was the stand-up guest. And Joe was someone I met in the Rafifi community, right? Right. But it was calling in favors, and I probably paid Joe 50 bucks or something. Um, but that was the first show. And then the second show, I think I, I got Joe Randazzo from The Onion again, just grasping out Jenny Slate was on that second show, I believe, with, with Dean. And talking about Marcel, I think that was, you know, that was running that time when that first launched. You know, again, it was just reach out to people having their emails. I'd work, I'd work with Greg Johnson on booking his show. So I had his, his booking list and that was very uh, okay. helpful. It was just a, like a lot of just getting these emails. Once you get the email, you send your pitch email, 
And for every 10 emails you send, maybe two people get back to you. So it was a lot of that. But so then it's like they, so it's like my booking. Like, process. Well, it's exactly, exactly. <laughs> I and, email and, you ten times, and eventually, exactly. eventually, I get you on the podcast. It's, it's very similar. And then, Dave, <laughs> but David Cross was a guy who I just, you know, like I don't have his email. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody well enough to ask for his email. But I knew he lived in Brooklyn. I knew he was making appearances. So he was doing a charity event for the eight two six NYC. You know, I, I think it was like the David Eggers thing. Right. It was like a it was like a poker night a bookstore in Park Slope and I went and I, I paid the 50 bucks to enter this tournament that I had no intention of actually participating in, but he was there at a table and I had a letter prepared. I also had some photos that I printed. I worked at Topps baseball cards at the time. Ah, it's all coming and together. It's all coming together. Topps had done a card of David Cross and my mm-hmm. job at Tops was to take the photos in the database and crop them the card. So you could mm-hmm. type in David Cross, and boom, there's 12 photos from the photo shoot with him and his dog, Ollie. And I took a few select photos, printed them, put them in this letter with my name, number, email, very nice, long, handwritten letter, put it in an envelope, went, went up to him at this charity event and said, Mr. Cross, huge fan. I host a talk show. All the information is in here. I also worked at Tops. I threw some little photos in for you. I'd appreciate if you take a look. And that was it. About a week or so later, he emails me. Thanks for the photos. I can't do the date, but keep me posted. Mm-hmm. And I kept emailing, and we finally booked him. And then having David and Amber Tamlin, his wife, together, their first public appearance together. That was like a, a news-making show in May of 2012. Okay. It like actually did get picked up. Like This is our first time, I think, like appearing in public or doing some show together. T- telling the story of how they met. They got that, oh, I got that yeah. story out of them. It was really cool. And that was the game changer. So that was like my third show. But getting that booking was now, hey, John Hamm, David Cross did it. Hey, Paul Rudd, John Hamm did it. You know, and it's just you you use that. And mm. but you know, John Hamm was probably a couple years of emailing. Uh, and then and then one day it was like I wasn't that that was a crazy day because I booked John Benjamin. And I, I guess I'd emailed John Hamm about it. He's like, I'm not sure, I'll let you know. The day of the show, he calls me. Scott, it's John Hamm. Oh, hi. Uh, I can do the show tonight. Really? Okay. <laughs> uh, well, all right. Uh, we got John Benjamin. Okay. And then it was like, it was literally the same day booking and we oh, got wow. the car and, and that, you know, so things came together like that. It was a crazy period in my life. Super fun, super exhausting. Every time I did the show, it was the best thing I ever did. And then the end of the night, I said, I never want to do this again. But of course, <laughs> you end up doing it again. So, um, okay. yeah, I, I, I really love those days, but no, that was, it was, it was exhausting, Sean, as you know, and just keeping, keeping up with these people and getting them to write you back and following up. And, and I like, right. just like you did say, and then I apologize for missing the email and all that. So between that and HQ, you had, you had two different, two other projects. I mean, one of which was doing running late, but with my damn channel, a company that I'm intimately familiar with and then you also had a show with go 90 which mm. was a thing that i don't know They're if anybody remembers dustbins of history but what were gathered. those two experiences like my damn channel and then go 90 the my damn channel thing i think that was a rev share thing that they were going to promote the clips honestly sean i don't think i saw a penny from any of that <laughs> okay <laughs> i don't think it did very well I don't think it was, it, it, it was not, I, I, I'm trying to remember the exact, this is 10 years ago and I don't really know 
the specifics of the deal, but I think it was supposed to be like, well, they'll put clips because I was putting clips on YouTube and they were a, a multi-channel aggregator kind of thing content. So they, I think just put their, my clips on their channel. I was supposed to be a share, but I, I don't think it, I don't think we got many views. And then the go 90 thing that was substantial at the time for me. So go 90, that was Verizon. That was Verizon. Go 90 was this uh billion dollar mistake. <laughs> right. That's that's all I remember it as. I, I didn't even have a chance to like sign up and no. take a look at it. But hey, I was happy to take some of that billion dollars. Um but it, it was it was fun to do. It was a talk show. I think we got six episodes out of it, six, eight episodes. But it was based on this ambush talk show I did in my apartment with Andrew WK and Gilbert Godfrey as guests. I premise was I invited people from Craigslist, strangers to come I come to my house. I interview them, I give it give them a uh uh, roommate interview, right? The, that was that was the email they got. Hey, I'm going to interview you to be my roommate. Swing by between 12 and 4, and they'd show up, and we put a little microphone on them. My producer was saying, oh, we're actually doing a documentary about house hunting in New York. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we... Hey, okay, sign a release. Here's a live mic. And they walk upstairs, and boom, open the door. There's cameras in their faces. My next guest, Joe Sanders. And Joe would sit down, and like, what? And like, you're a guest <laughs> on this talk show. I had a band. I had the Gregory Brothers setting up as my little musical sidekick and then we bring out celebrity guests the gregory brothers it was michael gregory one of the great we couldn't fit the apartment was too small sean we could fit one gregory brother and his keyboard and he was like the streamy award webby winning auto-tune champion gregory the very same the very same michael gregory he was my my paul schaefer and when we bring out we'd surprise these people are already surprised by saying celebrity guests joining us next you know him from uh, Iago on Aladdin. Please welcome Gilbert Godfrey. And Gilbert will walk out. I had a studio audience with my friends sitting there, all clapping, hooting, and hollering. It was such a fun shoot. Put that on YouTube. Daily News covered it. Um, I, I, I pulled every PR string to get some press around that. And lo and behold, someone at True TV, development exec, saw it. And if, and wanted to develop for True TV. We did like a pilot for them. It didn't go okay. there. But then Go ninety. We he, he, I guess he left True TV and went to Complex, which was part of this Go ninety thing. And boom, um, we got the thing sold to them for uh, you know a modest budget. But it was fine. I was happy to just do it and get it up there. And I thought, okay, Go ninety. Well, you know, who knows? Basically, by the time the thing got produced and put out there, Go ninety had shut down. So it was. It was not seen by very many people. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, you mentioned revenue share, uh, and that was like a big YouTube thing. Yeah, you had gone viral with some other videos. Did you see any YouTube money from that? Yeah. So the uh, the book cover videos. So the the, the first b- big one I did for them. Well, the first book cover video I did was actually for um, Playboy. And, and, and that was, uh, the deal there was work, you know, work for hire. So I made the video for them and they saw the YouTube money on that. Okay. And then after that happened, I was like, huh, I bet they made a lot more money on the YouTube ads than they paid me, which wasn't okay. very much. So, uh, I actually did a follow up on my own, uh, for my own okay. channel. And yeah, I think, you know, it's, it kind of, it's, again, it's been, and it's certainly when it was viral, it was, it was, you know, it'd be like 400 bucks. 600 bucks coming in like every every month i forget how they did it every month or something oh wow um but it was like okay wow this is pay- definitely you know paying back the production of the video and hey, look when it comes this is an interesting conversation production 
being a community, being an artist, it's something I still grapple with to this day. And it's something that really, I don't know, maybe there are panels around this or maybe there should be a, a, a class taught to young creators because the industry is, is an interesting one. You've got all these producers, production companies, and they're out there and they're just like looking for creators, looking for the people with the ideas. And they say, well, we've got the cameras, we've got the distribution, we've got this and that partner with us and we take half generally or in the playboy example it's like no we're not even you know here's 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 a thousand bucks to make a video and edit it and then okay now i have to hire people and you know i'm i become sort of the one-man production company and i try to budget things out and do all this work to maybe make 200 bucks out of it you know whatever it is no one teaches you how to navigate this stuff and a lot of the time, I feel like a lot of people get screwed because they sign a deal like that. And, well, I think, great, I'm getting $1,000, which actually becomes 200 And Playboy puts it out. And look, would it have gone viral had I just put on my own channel? Maybe not. Maybe it was being on the Playboy channel, which wasn't that big. It was like this chortle, this new humor vertical called mm-hmm. chortle. Um, but maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, I don't know. Um, there are some benefits, I guess, the pros and cons, you know, the distribution factor and all that. But now it's gotten to the point where, like, you know, TikTok and things, you can create your own videos, put them on TikTok. They go viral on their own. Do you need a production company? Do you need to be partnering with people on this stuff? All these rev share models, you know, rev share only works if if there's actually revenue to be shared. <laughs> right. Um, and, and a lot, you know, so it, it is it is an interesting thing and I've navigated it. Uh, to the best of my abilities over the last 15 years, I've been in this digital content space a while and uh, I'm sort of old school now because I, you know, the tell TikTok generation, it's amazing what you can do on your own with very little uh, uh, equipment. You know, it used to be, you got to hire shooters, hire an editor. Now you can do all that yourself on the phone. Right. So for the, so when you did your own book cover shoot on the subway, how many people were involved in that? Yeah, I think I had two shooters on that. Um, I ended up editing myself just to save some money. And, you know, I, I became somewhat proficient editor uh, just doing this. You know, initially, the first thing I did, you hire an editor. And then I, I, I'm so meticulous about it. I would say, I'll sit there with you while you edit this thing. I, I can't deal with it. Here's a cut. Send it over. Here are my notes. Send it back. To me, I'm like, it's so much quicker if I'll just sit there next to you and say, cut here, cut here. Let's tighten that, tighten that. Sitting next to this guy, you know, this guy Ballard Boyd, who ended up now he's working on Colbert as a director and producer editor. But he was the first guy I really saw editing and his fingers flying across the board. And I start to pick up like, how do you do that? What? Oh, okay. And that's, and then I got final cut and I started doing my own edits. I sort of self taught how to edit. And, um, that, that, those are the most valuable things. If I could do it all over again in college, I would have been taking editing classes. <laughs> I would have been taking, you know, production classes and and really focusing on this stuff because it ended up becoming such a, you know, my whole career essentially, which I I didn't study in college. I didn't learn anything about it. And I I sort of had to self-teach myself all these things. But like I said, I think there could be a symposium about all this and it would be very helpful for for people just getting started. But it may be very different today. I don't know. Although I know podcasting, there are production companies, always production companies who want a piece of your stuff and the question you have to ask yourself is, are they adding value? What kind of value are they bringing to, to warrant 50% right. of this thing that is my conception? I'm performing it. I'm putting all the real work into it. 
I can produce podcasts on my own in my house now versus, oh, there's a podcast studio and I could use your stuff. And, uh, you know, for that, I, I, I give up a percentage or whatever. Anyway, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it gets in the weeds a little bit, but you know, it isn't to me, it's interesting to, to know how, how to, how to really figure this out. Well, and it's changed so much in so many different times. Yeah. Since I met you in 2008. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, I have a, uh, I went back and I, I do have video of you and, and, uh, and Tom talking to me outside Rafifi. And it was shot on a flip cam. Flip the flip cam. I had one of those. It was shot on a flip cam. So it's that level of technology, that level of uh, pixelation. Uh, and I put it on daily motion, not on YouTube because Amy Carlson. Because she was like big in the Daily Motion comedy vertical, so she convinced me and some other people to put videos on Daily Motion. There were but so that's, many of these. But that's what companies. 2008 was like. So to wrap this up, you you know you famously, now that it's in the documentary, you were going to move to LA before HQ happened, and now you are in the greater Los Angeles area. Yes. Is this is this how you thought it was going to go? Uh, when I first took that HQ gig? Well, I mean, the, the I mean, when you, when you, uh, I guess what I'm wondering is when you were going to move the first time, were you thinking, oh, oh I'm going to open a vintage store? And no, <laughs> no, 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 I, I see. So no, the, uh, my, my LA, my LA sojourn delayed trip here, uh, is very different. Look, when I was going to move to LA back in 2017, I had just done some running late shows out here at the Virgil. They were fantastic. Big time guests. Joe Manganiello, Weird Al Yankovic, Reggie Watts, Andy Kindler, the Sklar brothers, Nikki Glazer, you know, all, all, all these people that, um, you know, some were friends and some were people that I just was reaching out to blindly and hoping for the best. And, uh, I thought, and they were sold out shows. It was phenomenal. I did like two runs of them, one in, I think in February and one in May. I had Sean Green, former Dodger. I had, you know, uh, God, I think I had David Wayne again. I, it, it, was, it was phenomenal. And I loved doing the shows. I was a Dynasty typewriter as well. And I was like, these are great venues, great crowds. And I'm bringing the show that's really professional and really formalized. And I've been working on it for so many years in New York. And I, to me, I thought, I can come to L.A. with this thing that I've been fine-tuning and really blow the scene up up here mm-hmm. because I'd seen shows in LA and I was look, a lot of talented, funny people, but it's when it comes to shows produced shows in LA, I was not impressed with it's LA, man. Everyone is like, so laid back here and chill and no one wants to really do the work and take the time to properly, you know, throw things together. It was all just kind of like on stage. People were just, you know, lollygagging through through the whole setup right and it just it was and that's the vibe people you know especially on the east side the 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 hipster element to la it's like anything produced anything that you put effort into is almost looked down upon (laughs) according to that segment of the comedy community and i i I didn't buy that i mean i think you could be funny and polished at the same time so that i was thinking i can come here and really be like people be like this guy's in a suit he's got a band there's, you know, a, a, a set, there's structure. Like I thought that was going to really make waves out here. And that mm-hmm. was my plan. 
I was I was just gonna come out here and do the show weekly and build an audience and find and maybe get noticed. HQ happens, okay, yada yada, cut to now. Two years ago I moved to LA in twenty twenty one and I have a name, I have established myself. I, I sort of jumped the line. I, I kind of you know, HQ catapulted me beyond all that. I, I I'd been discovered, I had made it, quote unquote. So it's a whole different scene for me now. And it and you know, the truth be told, I sort of lost that hunger to be out there because it's a lot of work. You know, I'm not I don't really have it in me now to be producing a weekly show or even a monthly show and putting all that together for what? To get noticed. I already got noticed. So, you know, it, it, it at this point it would be just for fun. And mm-hmm. and, it, and it is fun and I would like to do it again at some point, but that that kind of cadence, um, especially with everything else I have going on right now, I've got multiple irons in the fire and hopefully some things, you know, happening very soon that I'm, I'm very excited about. I just don't think I have the time for it right now. So uh, it's a very different thing. And then opening the, the, the vintage shop came out of a lifelong dream to do that. And having this opportunity, finding this rent, finding this location, uh, you know, having the money to put down on, on the rent. Um, so it's just, it, 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 that all, you know, I wouldn't have been doing that had I moved here in 2017. So it, 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 I'm very happy with how everything worked out. It's certainly not how I expected any of it to happen, but best laid plans, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I have to say when I ran into you at a, uh, Wolves of Glendale show mm. last year, and you told me that, that, that this is what you were doing now, it took me more than a minute to, to put it together. When I saw you in the store, it it suddenly made sense. And now, you know, hearing you talk and talking about not just like the 12 Angry Mascots and all that sports stuff, but then working at Tops baseball cards, like it all, like it seems like all the pieces were there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it it's, all this stuff has been in me. It's just a matter of finding the timing. Timing, timing, timing is everything. And just having you know, things unfold. I'm very impatient. Generally, I like to hustle, hustle, hustle. It's very hard for me to sort of realize you can kind of sit back and sort of let things unfold sometimes. And I've always believed this and I tell it to anybody asks for advice, hard work, talent, and opportunity. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You have to, you know, if, if you have the talent and you put in the hard work in, the opportunity will find you. There's obviously luck involved, timing, but that's the part you can't control. So just work on the work on the work. Just do mm-hmm. the work and you know, build up your talents, learn new skills, be nice to people, you know, reply to emails. <laughs> uh, sorry again. This is a no, uh, this is an extenuating circumstance. It's all worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, so is there something, you know, going back to that final image from from the documentary glitch, is there something comforting now about being able to just have your own store and have your own piece of the sidewalk to keep clear and to be able it to really greet is. customers who come in and not, not, it's a different kind of hustle, right? Cause you're owning it's, your own. Exactly. Business, but I'm it's, still hustling, but it's, it's not, um, it's not like talking to 2 million people on, on a, on their phones right. all at once. And there's no, there's no pressure to perform. I mean, I don't know if I felt like, when I would do my shows, my running late shows, and I would do stand-up gig, th- there's an element of, shit, this better go well tonight. Like, I, I got to be on, you know, 
you know, especially with the running late shows, because that, that stand up, you have a bad set, you can get up the next night if you want to. But those shows I'm spending months preparing for, and you got one shot at it. There are no redos, right. <laughs> and it's like, I, I this is you know, if something were to go wrong or I miss a cue or forget a joke, like it would haunt me. I think about it for weeks. And like, Fuck. But with this, I'm open. I can go when I want. I can open when I want to. I uh, there's no desperation or a sense of like if I don't sell this shirt today, I'm fucked, you know. <laughs> so that's nice, and I do like there's a tangibility of it where you're actually holding material, you're exchanging goods for money versus like making a video, which doesn't seem to make sense, like <laughs> or doing stand up and like I'm just talking to people and they're paying me, you know. Some of that just doesn't even compute with my with my mercantile right. brain. Like, what do you mean? What do you you know? What are you paying for? No, here you're paying for a shirt, you're paying for a hat, you're getting something tangible you can wear and appreciate and hold on to. So that's I like that actually feeling the money and exchanging uh goods for it. So that that element is is really thrilling for me too. And I'll tell you, man, I'm more excited about making forty bucks on the t shirt than I have, you know, making ten times that on on some hosting some marketing conference or something. You know, it's like this doesn't make sense. Like it, you know, it, it's not about the amount of money, it's about the experience of, of, of making it. Well, it's been, it's been quite a ride, Scott Rogowski, to see you grow up in front of my eyes, literally from a 23 uh, year old, fresh out of college kid, uh, intern at the onion to quiz daddy. And now quiz daddy's closet. It's, a uh, it's amazing to see. And, and I'm grateful to see you come out, come out. Okay. The other, the other end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. I, I appreciate you. Yeah, you're being in there and and covering this because honestly, it's without people like you actually truly caring about this and um, putting putting it out there for the masses to to then you know understand and appreciate it. It really is helpful to have the comics comic keeping tabs on the scene and and uh, I've always appreciated your work. So thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate it. <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.